Okay, so we are this year as a fellowship going through the whole of the Bible in one year. Uh, in fact, we're actually going to do it in 48 sessions. Uh, so we started back in, Gen- in uh, January in Genesis, and we've just been working through, just overviewing, looking at Scripture. Very much like when you see an aerial photograph of something. You see things differently, um, and it helps to give us a perspective of, of God's plan and everything else. Uh, these two books this morning are probably some of the most incredible in the whole of the Bible. I know we say that every week we get to a different book. But these really are special. Um, Let's bow our hearts before we uh, open the word together. Father, we just thank you for this time. We thank you for your word. Lord, we thank you that it changes us. It changes the way we see ourselves, Lord. It helps us to see us as we are. And Lord, it also helps us to understand you in your glory, your majesty, your faithfulness. This morning, Father, we just pray now that you would open our eyes as we study these scriptures together. Give us understanding through your Holy Spirit, we pray. Father, we want to grow in knowledge and grace. And Father, we pray this morning that you just take us another step forward. And Lord, just bless this time, we pray. Open our hearts and ears, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> well, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Don't worry, it's not going to be a really long sermon. We're not starting right in Genesis. But you know, the question that that really should prompt us to ask is, why? Why did God do it? What was God's plan in creating everything in the first place? Well, according to Paul Bilheimer, he says the sole reason for the universe and all therein is to find and prepare an eternal companion for Jesus Christ. That's quite a statement. But actually it is borne out in scriptures we'll see this morning. But there's two prerequisites for that to happen. One of them is the law. The law had to be given. And then the monarchy had to be established. You see, God had to establish his law to show that all mankind are guilty and therefore in need of a saviour. And then God established the kingdom, destined to be an eternal kingdom ruled by Christ and his bride. So the law, as we know, came before the kingdom. And so, before we can have an Ephesians, we must have a Galatians. Galatians is the book that addresses the law. It reveals the true purpose of the law. And it shows that all are confined or concluded under sin. Ephesians, though, is the book that unveils the mystery of the church. It reveals Christ's bride who will reign with him now that the demands of the law have been satisfied. You see, the law had been given to show that mankind needed a saviour. The monarchy had to be established for there to be an everlasting kingdom. Galatians is given, therefore, to conclude the law. Ephesians is given to commence the eternal reign of Christ with his bride. Made possible, of course, by Jesus' sacrificial death. And, of course, through the church, all are united in Christ. We'll see that in the book of Ephesians, uh, amplified in a moment. You see, the law drives us to Christ, but it's his grace that keeps us there. So these two books really are very much a unit, in a sense, from a theological perspective. You see, now also, do you understand why Israel is so important in God's plan? You see, the law had to be given, the monarchy had to be established. How was God to do that? Well, he chose a nation, the nation of Israel. It was so important that God chose Abraham and his family. And again, what a tragedy that so much of the church today is so ignorant of God's 
place for Israel in his plan. See, Galatians really tells us that actually Jesus Christ is all you've got. You can't rely on yourself. But in contrast, Ephesians tells us that Jesus Christ is all you need. Again, Galatians tells us that the law and your own works will only condemn you. Ephesians tells you that Jesus is sufficient. The New Testament. We've got many books, 27 books in the New Testament. Who wrote most of the New Testament? If you had a show of hands, I wonder what you'd say. I'm not going to put you through that. I wonder what you think. You see, a lot of people think, well, Paul wrote most of the New Testament. Actually, Dr. Luke wrote most of the New Testament. Luke wrote 50,194 words. Paul, 43,402. If, however, Paul was the author of the book of Hebrews, then Paul would just tip it by 50,315. So, either way, it's close. But just uh, sometimes we just think that Paul kind of wrote most of the New Testament. But Luke wrote a very significant part with, of course, the, the Gospel of Luke and the book of Acts itself. John, incidentally, also a major contributor with the Gospel of John, 1st, 2nd, 3rd John, and also the book of Revelation, uh, 34,000 and so words. Um, But Paul did write 13, or possibly if we include Hebrews, 14 of the 27 books. So in terms of the content of the New Testament, Paul, very, very significant in his contribution and the way that God used this incredible individual. Significantly, Paul writes to seven specific churches in the New Testament. Three of those churches were written to whilst he was in prison. They're known as the prison epistles. That's Ephesians, Philippians, and Colossians. We'll be moving on to those latter books next week. Um, Pastoral books we have written by Paul of Timothy, Titus, and Philemon as well. And we'll explore those again in a few weeks' time when we get there. But it's interesting, if we look at Galatians, seemingly written around about the autumn of AD 56. Um, so, again, very kind of close to the original events that we read of in Scripture, things at the time that Jesus was walking uh, the shores of Galilee, climbing the mountains of Judea. Not long after that, these things are being recorded, and these letters that Paul is writing after his own conversion being sent out around the Christian world. Um, Ephesians, uh, only a couple of years later seemingly, um, and that's uh, somewhere in the summer of AD 58. We looked at some of these things as we were going through the book of Acts a few weeks ago. Interestingly, if we look at the churches that Paul wrote to, it's just interesting to look at the subjects he addresses in those letters. Thessalonians, the first letter to a church that Paul writes, addresses the subject of eschatology or the study of the end times. It's incredible, isn't it? It's a study that most churches tend to avoid. It was the first thing that Paul writes about. We'll look at that when we get to Thessalonians. But really, the subject of Thessalonians can be subtitled, Why must I be saved? The answer, of course, is because God is bringing his wrath on this world. And there's lots of uh, details we'll look about uh, in Thessalonians as well when we get there. Corinthians, really, both 1st and 2nd Corinthians, the, the subject really is ambassadorship. Is how must I live? If I am to be saved, what is my life to be like? And Paul very much addresses that theme in Corinthians. The next church that was written to is Galatians. The subject we're going to look at this morning as we pass through this is legalism. And really it's that question that was asked by the rich young ruler. As we said when we are going through Mark's gospel, some believe that rich young ruler may well have been Mark, who later became a believer. But the question that was asked by that individual was, what must I do to be saved? Well, Galatians will answer that for us. The subject in the book of Romans is soteriology, or the subject of salvation is how am I saved? Philippians, very much, it's all about death to self. 
You know, the suffering of salvation, the fact that we are to experience these trials, but not just the external things, it's that struggle inside that we must die to self. Then Colossians, very much addressing our walk as believers, that we should stand fast in our salvation. And then finally, the last of the churches that Paul writes to seemingly uh, in a chronological order is the book of Ephesians, where Paul really deals with the big one. What is the purpose of salvation? And that's what we're going to conclude and look with in just a moment. Just to look geographically at the area we're covering, we've got obviously the Mediterranean Sea, we've got Israel over this side, Jerusalem, Antioch, which became the kind of headquarters of the early church, and then Paul starts his missionary journeys across to Cyprus and to Crete, and then back across the mainland, and starts to plant these churches in this area that we now refer to as Galatia, kind of an area split into two, kind of a north and a south area. Ephesus is here on the coast of the Aegean Sea as well. So this is the area uh, that these churches are located in. So Galatia, there were a number of churches in this region um, and Ephesus obviously a single town uh, in that region as well so that's where we're looking so let's first of all jump into the book of Galatians now just give you some background about the Galatians themselves old Galatia which was northern Asia Minor was settled by the Gauls the Latin name for that is Galei which is where we get the name Galatians there were Celtic speaking people who spread to western Europe France Spain and the British Isles um, from when, whence come the Scots, the Welsh, the French, the Irish, and so on, uh, all descendants from these people. In the 4th century BC, they invaded the Roman Empire before it became really strong, and they sacked Rome. And then, um, just over 100 years later, 280 BC, they crossed into Greece and captured Delphi. And then following from that, uh, at the invitation of Nicomedes I, who was the king of Bithynia at the time, uh, they crossed over into Asia Minor to help him in a civil war. Well, by the time we get to 25 BC, uh, the territory was taken over by the Roman Empire and made a Roman province, including parts of uh, Phygia, Pisidia, Lycomia, uh, and Syria as well. All those areas kind of included in this, this geographical land that we refer to as uh, uh, Galatia. Um, Caesar made this comment. He said, the infirmity of the Gauls is that they are fickle in their resolves, fond of change, and not to be trusted. They had this kind of reputation. Uh, Thierry makes this comment. Flank, impestuous, impre- uh, impressible, um, Eminently intelligent, but extremely inconsistent, fond of show, perpetually quarrelling, the fruit of excessive vanity. Now it's interesting, that's just kind of a secular view very much on these people, but we see that coming through in this letter. This kind of subject to change, this kind of very fickle nature that they seem to have as a people group. And it just tells us that, you know, it doesn't matter what happens from a generation to generation, actually, we don't change all that much. We, we kind of inherit so much and we carry on the same. The only thing that really truly changes us is Jesus Christ. Well, the book of Galatians itself is one of Paul's greatest uh, letters in a number of regards. It's been characterized as a short Romans, or you could flip that around and say Romans is actually an expansion of the book of Galatians in many regards. Galatians, probably more than any other single book, became the manifesto of freedom and the revival of biblical truth during the time of the Reformation because of the fact of the emphasis on the purpose of the law in all of these things. 
What was Paul's reason for writing? Well, the Galatian church, which had been seeded by Paul himself, had subsequently been influenced uh, by the Judaizers. These were those who, some of them may have been Christians, some of them clearly were not Christians, they were just Jews, but they were trying to encourage the Christians just to be good Christians, but under the law. It's like, well, go go ahead, have your religion, but you've still got to keep the law. And that's what Paul is addressing here. He's really, you know, you must keep the law of Moses, was that kind of echo that came coming back. It was the uh, quintessential Jesus and gospel, if you like. And we see so much of that. You know, the Bible tells us, and we'll see this morning, it is just Jesus. But so many people try to add something on to this plan of salvation. Well, yes, believe in Jesus, but then do this as well. You see, that's the root issue with most cults. They try to add something onto it. Good works or certain this or certain that. And sadly, it's too prevalent even within the Christian church as well. Paul, though, had no toleration for legalism. And to him, it was a life or death issue. You see, this letter is a direct attack on anything other than just simply the grace of God. And of course, it's offensive to the natural mind. That the gospel states that you can do nothing to bring, you can bring nothing, you contribute nothing towards your salvation. And it is offense because we like to do things. We like to try and chip in and do our bit. But this book, more than any, reveals that there is nothing that we can do. You see, the best that we have, we're told in the book of Isaiah, is as filthy rags before a holy God. And probably a great summary verse for Galatians is Galatians 2 verse 21. And Paul just says, if righteousness came by the law, and you can read into that works or any effort on our part, if righteousness came by the things that we can do, well then Christ died in vain. And a great summary verse for the whole of the book. If we jump into Galatians chapter 1, we see this, this problem that Paul was addressing. And just picking up verse 7, he says, There be some that trouble you and would pervert the gospel of Christ. And verse 8 carries on and says, But though we or an angel from heaven preach any other gospel unto you than that which we have preached unto you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, so say I now again, if any man preach any other gospel unto you than that you have received, let him be accursed. Twice Paul says this, this about being accursed, if you try and preach any other gospel. It doesn't matter whether it looks good on the surface. It doesn't matter whether you include the name of Jesus in it. If it's a gospel that is not based purely on the grace of God alone, then it's a false gospel. And Paul says that let anybody that try and preach those things be accursed. See, the epistle contains no word of commendation. There's no praise, no thanksgiving, which is unlike most of Paul's other writings. You see, the epistle to the Romans very much comes from the head of Paul. It's very much an intellectual argument presenting these things very logically. But the book of Galatians, this epistle to the Galatians, comes from Paul's heart. It's very much an emotional response to this problem. Galatians, it's been said, is the strongest declaration and defense of the doctrine of justification by faith, in or out of Scripture. It's God's polemic, God's argument on behalf of the most vital truth of the Christian faith against any attack. Not only is a sinner saved by grace through faith plus nothing, but the saved sinner lives by grace. 
Well, we could spend the whole morning, we could probably spend a whole series, and who knows, maybe the Lord will lead us down that road sometime, to look at that second part. Because we, as believers, tend to accept that we're saved by grace. But how many of us actually have realised that we are being sanctified by grace? That it's not our effort. You know, so many Christians, myself included, try so hard sometimes to get it right. And we think if we get it right, God is happier with us. And if we get it wrong, God's cross with us. We've got it all wrong. It's all about grace. And maybe, God willing, we'll look and we'll study these things in detail at another time. What's the relevance for us today? Well, quite simply, really highlighting what I just said there, that the flesh loves to do religious things, celebrate holy days, practice rituals, attempt to do good works for God. makes us feel good, doesn't it? And, you know, many religious systems today, they mix the law and grace and they present this garbled, confused way of salvation that is actually a way of bondage. And by the way, don't just think it's other religions because we can do that to ourselves. We can try and erect a standard that if I do this, then God will be happy with me. You know, the only way God is happy with you, to use that expression, is by the blood of Jesus Christ, not by anything you do. So keeping the Sabbath, those dietary laws, earthly priesthoods, holy days, obeying rules, all of these are swept away in Galatians and replaced by the glorious liberty of the believer, or the glorious liberty that the believer has through faith in Christ. To give us a kind of a breakdown then of the book itself, the first two chapters, really Paul underlines there the authenticity of the gospel itself. He highlights that his own position is that of God's appointing. It's not his own desire. It's not somebody else that's put him in that position. He's been ordained of God. But the gospel itself is of God. And he testifies in the first chapter that it's genuine in terms of its origin. He makes his argument for it. And then in the chapter 2, it's genuine as to its nature as well. In the third and fourth chapters, really, Paul highlights the superiority of the gospel. The relation it now affects and the privileges it releases. And then finally, the last two chapters, five and six, we see the true liberty of the gospel. You know, that love service puts an end to the law bondage. You know, the spirit ends flesh bondage. And when we understand that we are to walk in the spirit, to live by the spirit, it sets us free from the, the burden and the bondage that the flesh will place upon us. And then finally, the book ends in chapter six with these concluding salutations that typically we see at the end of Paul's letters. So let's have a look at some of the, the scriptures in Galatians, some highlights that we can, can look at on the way past. In Galatians 2, Paul makes this statement. He says, for I, through the law, am dead to the law. What's he saying? We're well, saying that the law has killed me. The law has slain me. The law has shown me that I cannot be right with God. I, through the law, have come to that place where now I have been convicted and I've died. That I might live unto God. Now, Paul amplifies this enormously in the book of uh, Romans. We studied that a few weeks back now. But these two do go together in that regard. Verse 20, though, carries on. And Paul says, I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live. Yet not I, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me. And gave himself for me. A great declaration. It's a verse that over the years we've used many times at baptisms and things. Um, just as a declaration of this new life. This old life dies. And then a new life begins. But it's a life that is put in us. Not something that we can do of ourselves. Galatians chapter 3. The first three verses. We're told 
really, we get into the meat of why Paul is writing this letter. The first two tra- chapters, Paul is very much an introduction. He spends two chapters just getting warmed up, really. And in chapter 3, Paul says, Oh foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you that you should not obey the truth before whose eyes Jesus Christ has been evidently set forth, crucified among you? This only would I learn of you. Receive you the Spirit by the works of the law or by the hearing of faith? Are you so foolish? Having begun in the Spirit, are you now made perfect by the flesh? And he's saying, let's just stop and think about this. How was it you were saved? Was it by something you did? Or was it by meeting a standard? By obeying the law? Or was it purely by faith? So if you started by faith, why is it you think you could be made perfect by your efforts? Yeah, this is a big challenge. Chuck Smith wrote an absolutely fantastic book called Why Grace Changes Everything. And it's absolutely true. The title says it all. Grace does change everything. But for many Christians, many believers, they're caught up in this kind of bondage to the flesh. This same issue that Paul was addressing to the Galatians. You know, you had nothing to do with your salvation. Why is it that you think you can do something about your sanctification? It's a really big subject to take on and to to address personally. Verse 19, we carry on, and Paul there says, in other words, wherefore then serveth the law? What's the point of the law then? And he says, it was added because of transgressions, till the seed should come. I love, I've said this before, and I'm very indebted to Chuck Misler for highlighting those untils. Whenever you see an until in the Bible, mark it. They're always important. It was added until transgressions, until the seed should come to whom the promise was made and it was ordained by angels in the hand of a mediator so we're told that the law was there for a time until it had been concluded until it fulfilled its purpose and that would arrive that time would come once once the seed had come we're reading galatians three twenty-two to 25 but the scripture has concluded all under sin that the promise by faith of jesus christ might be given to them that believe in the book of romans paul makes the, the point that The law has shown that we're sinners. The law was given to show that we are sinful. The law has concluded all under sin. But Verse 23, But before faith came, we were kept under the law, shut up unto the faith which should afterwards be revealed. So we were kind of kept under guard by the law in a sense. And then we're told, verse 24, Wherefore the law was our schoolmaster. The word in Greek is pedagogue. It's the idea of a kind of a chaperone, somebody that would go around with a pupil and look after them and bring them to this, this place of uh, finally completing their education. Well, that's what the law's there for, is a schoolmaster to bring us unto Christ, that we might be justified by faith. But then look what verse 25 says, but after that faith has come, we are no longer under a schoolmaster. The law's completed its work. The law can drive you as far as Christ. And once you die at the foot of the cross with Christ, once we give up the right to ourselves and we surrender all, the law can't chase us any further. The law only has power over one that is living. And once we die to the old life, the law has no power over us. See, God promised Abraham that the blessing that he promised him wouldn't be on the basis of his works, but on the basis of faith alone. The law did not and cannot supersede that promise that was given previously to Abraham. This is the point that Paul will make. And the law was added, as we just noted, to expose sin. The law, again, confines all under sin. And it shows that we need a saviour. 
Again, the law being our schoolmaster leads us to Christ. But then the law's task is complete. Now, in the book of Galatians, Paul gives us a number of wonderful little bits of information. But there's, there's a couple of insights that we get in Galatians that actually we don't find elsewhere. Um, but they help to unlock a couple of uh, otherwise conundrums or problems, certainly that we've uh, made for ourselves in studying scripture and the church throughout the years. So there's two great little insights, two pieces of information. Firstly, the Mount Sinai is in Arabia, not in the Sinai Peninsula. That was labelled sometime later, about 300 AD, that was given the tag of being Sinai Peninsula. And supposedly this mountain there was Sinai, because, you know, you, you, this, uh, um, Constantine's uh, mother, Helena, goes down there, she finds this mountain, well, what else could it be? So it's, that was labelled a Sinai. A number of places were kind of given labels in that kind of way. But Moses, as you remember, was on the backside of the desert in Midian when he saw the burning bush. And God tells him to bring the children of Israel back to that mountain. And that's what he does. Midian is today in the place that we refer to as Arabia, Saudi Arabia. And that's where this mountain was that the law was given to Moses on. This is where the Israelites camped. And we've seen when we were going through our study in Exodus and Numbers and so on, the evidence uh, that surrounds the base of that mountain. Um, just overwhelming evidence to show that this was indeed the place uh, that the Israelites camped and made their home for two years. Another thing that we're told is that the 430-year sojourn began with the call of Abraham and ends at the Exodus. The 400 years of affliction that we find referenced in Scripture begin with Ishmael's persecution of Isaac. Now, the significance there is that it means that once you do the, the calculations, you works out, Israel were not in Egypt for 430 years or 400 years, as most commentators say. There are some that get it right, but most of them have just picked up this idea of 430 or 400 years and assumed that Israel were in Egypt for the whole of that time. Not so. Israel were only in Egypt for 215 years. Now, a number of Bible commentators through the years have got this right, and there's a number of ways you can demonstrate this from the text. But in Galatians, Paul makes it absolutely clear that this period of time began with the call of Abraham. And you see how God has a complete control of, of all of these things. So just two little insights that come out from the book of Galatians. Moving into chapter 5. Again, we're just pulling some highlights here. We read in verse 16, This I say there. Now, this is really kind of a conclusion. After Paul has addressed the whole issue with the law, he's saying, This I say then. Walk in the Spirit and you shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. You know, he's really, again, comparing the way it is under the law, where we struggle with those natural carnal desires and so on. But he's saying, if we are in the Spirit, you're not fulfilled the lusts of the flesh. For the flesh lusts against the Spirit, and the Spirit against the flesh. And these are contrary, the one to the other. So that you cannot do the things that you would. Really, there's kind of a tug of war going on, is what's being presented. But we don't need to yield to the flesh. Because Paul says, if you are led of the Spirit, you are not under the law. He goes on and says, the works of the flesh are manifest. Which are these? Adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lasciviousness, idolatry, witchcraft, hatred, various emulations, wrath, strife, seditions, heresies, envyings, murders, drunkenness, revilings and such like. Of the which I tell you before, as I have also told you in time past, that they which do such things shall not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, 
meekness, temperance. Against such there is no law. And they that are Christ have crucified the flesh with the affections and lusts. If we live in the Spirit, let us also walk in the Spirit. You know, that is the fruit that should be evident in a believer's life. Again, I think I've mentioned this before, but somebody went up to a believer once and said, Are you a Christian? And the response was, that's for you to tell me. And you know, there's, there's an element of truth in that, that people should be able to see in us that there is a difference. And that difference is the working of the Holy Spirit, the fruit that is produced. You know, any believer, we should see love. It should just be intrinsic to our new nature. There should be joy. We mentioned this last night. Not happiness, but a joy that transcends circumstances. A peace, a peace that passes understanding. You know, even when things get quite out of control, seemingly, there should still be that peace there. That long-suffering, that patience, that gentleness, goodness, faith. <laughs> Making this temperance. Again, there's no law against those things. That's the way we should be living our lives. There is, however, a law that we are to keep. Galatians 6.2, and I think it's one of my favourite verses in the whole of the New Testament. Many of you will know this by now. Bear you one another's burdens, and so fulfil the law of Christ. Galatians 6, verse 2. Please commit that one to memory. Bear one another's burdens, and so fulfil the law of Christ. That is the law that all of us, within any body of believers, should make sure we commit just not to memory in the head, but commit to our hearts. And I remember as a, as a child... We had some, uh, in fact, there's still there's a couple that still go to the fellowship in Deal. And uh, we got some, the, the lady used to make us little cards with scripture verses on little drawings, little drawings. And I had this one, it was stuck up on my wall in my bedroom. And it was just a picture of kind of elephants walking along together. And each of them were kind of with their trunks holding the tail of the one in front and they were kind of walking along together. And it was just this bear one another's burdens. And actually you think about it, that the elephant bearing the tail of another elephant is not really helping all that much. You know, but there is actually a kind of a point in that. The, the little things that you think probably don't matter, do matter. The little things that you could say, say them. It helps. Those little words of encouragement. Don't just think something. Oh, you know, that, that, that individual, that was really kind or that was good. Or, you know, tell them. Encourage each other. We could spend a long time on this verse, but please, just commit it to memory. Commit it to your heart. Bear one another's burdens. Come alongside each other. Come alongside each other in prayer. So we move into the book of Ephesians. What an incredible book this is. Really, again, so much speaking of this incredible grace. The key, really, in this book is mystery. It's used six times, that word. We find it in the first chapter, in verse, uh, chapter 1, verse 9, the mystery of his will. In chapter 3, is the mystery of his plan. Chapter 3, verse 4, again, the mystery of Christ. Chapter 3, verse 9, it's the mystery of the church. Chapter 5, verse 32, the mystery of Christ and the church. And then finally, in chapter 6, verse 19, the mystery of the gospel. The, the Greek word mysterion, it's not kind of mystery as it's something that's concealed that we don't know, that we can't understand. It's something that was once concealed, but now we know. We now understand these things. That's the whole point of the things that Paul reveals to us here. Chapter 1 really addresses the question, who we are. Chapter 2 really deals with 
where we've come from. Chapter 3, where we're going. Chapter 4, what we should be doing. Chapter 5 is why we should be doing it. And chapter 6, how we are to do it. There's all the kind of the who, where, what, why, when questions. Also, yeah, the only one that's not there actually is when. And the answer to that is now, is when we do these things. So let's just go through some of these things. In chapter 1, <clears throat> who we are. Well, we're told that we are who we are by God's will. That's incredible. It's God's will that we are who we are. We are saints. You don't have to die and be dead 300 years and have done some good work to become a saint. This is something that God says you are. We're set apart for him. We are blessed. We are chosen. Adopted by God. We're accepted. Redeemed. You know, think of a, a slave who's been, been being sold and somebody purchased that slave, slave back. That's us. We've re- been redeemed. We've been forgiven. We are beneficiaries who will inherit. We've been sealed marked as gods and we are the body of Christ what a statement for us that's you and I what a privileged position we are in because this is the mystery of God's will just picking up verse 9 of chapter 1 having made known unto us and here we are the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure wherein he's purposed in himself that in the dispensation of the fullness of times Okay, what does that mean? Really, paraphrase, when all is said and done, in the final analysis, when we get to the end, in the dispensation of the fullness of times, that he might gather together in one all things in Christ, both which are in heaven and which are on earth in him. Remember what I said right at the start, that quote from Paul Bellheimer, that the entire reason for the universe and all therein was to find and prepare an eternal companion for Jesus, to bring together all in one. Chapter 2. It's where we've come from. And we read a portion of this earlier on this morning. And the first thing is that we were dead. Spiritually dead. We were slaves. We were captives, subject to wrath. We were undeserving, helpless, outcasts. We had no right to inherit. We were guilty under the law. We were strangers and foreigners. Just contrast chapter 1 and chapter 2. Chapter 2, verse 1 starts and says, And you, has he quickened, made alive? And look at the, the past tenses here. Who were dead in trespasses and sins. Wherein in time past you walked, past tense, according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that now works in the children of disobedience, among whom also we had, past tense, our conversation. This was the way we were in times past, in the lust of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were past tense, by nature, the children of wrath, even as others. And then look at verse 4. I think verse 4 starts with the two greatest words in all of time and space. But God. In the context of this book, of the subject that Paul is addressing here, I think they are the two most important words you will find anywhere. But God. Not but I, or but you, or it's but God. There was a condition, there was a problem, there was a situation. There was no way of addressing it but God. God was the only one that could have addressed it and God chose to address it. But God, who is rich in mercy for his great love wherein he loved us, even when we were dead in sins, 
even then, he's quickened us together with Christ. And what a statement, by grace are you saved. Carizona says, and has raised, present tense, us up together and made us sit. That is a present tense, continual action. Together in the heavenly places in Christ, that in the ages to come he might show the exceeding riches of his grace and his kindness toward us through Christ Jesus. Doesn't that just, just make you think a moment there, verse 7? You know, we already are getting an idea as we read these scriptures of the incredible work that has been accomplished for us. You look at where we were, chapter 2, contrast that with chapter 1, which tells us where we now are. And here we're told that in the ages to come he might show. So there's things in the future that God is going to show us that will demonstrate, beyond anything we've imagined, the exceeding riches of his grace. We think we've understood it? No, not even half. For in the light of eternity, in the ages to come, he will show the exceeding riches of his grace. What will that be like? In the kindness toward us through Christ Jesus. And again, for by grace are you saved through faith, and not of yourself. It is a gift of God, not of works lest any man should boast. For we are his workmanship. The Greek is poema. This is the idea, it's where we get the word poem from. For we are his poem, as it were. Created in Christ Jesus unto good works, which God has before ordained that we should walk in them. So chapter 3 really is the question of where are we going? Well, we're heirs of salvation. That is what we are going to inherit. We're recipients of his power. That on its own is incredible. Destined for unsearchable riches. We're part of an eternal purpose. And we are the revelation of his glory. That's an incredible statement on its own. Chapter 3, picking up verse 3. By revelation God made known unto me the mystery, as Paul's saying, as I wrote before in a few words, which in other ages was not made known unto the sons of men as it is now revealed. Paul is unveiling this mystery here of the church. That in the Old Testament was concealed. But now he's saying that it's being revealed. We now understand this incredible mystery. Verse 6 tells us that the Gentiles should be fellow heirs and of the same body and partakers of his promise in Christ by the gospel. This whole idea of this, this distinction between the Jews and the Gentiles or between slave and free, between male and female, all of that is broken down in Christ, and we're all made one in him. To make make all men see what is the fellowship of the mystery, which from the beginning of the world has been hid in God, who created all things by Jesus Christ. To the intent, this, this verse is a key verse, to the intent that now... Unto the principalities and powers in heavenly places might be made known by, and I put this in myself, by the existence of, because this is what it means, by the existence of the church, the manifold wisdom of God. Let me unpack that. What Paul is saying is that the angels in times past, as they looked at Jesus coming to this earth as a baby, giving up the majesty, the glory of heaven, to come, to be born as The most helpless thing, in a sense, in all of creation. You know, you look at the animal kingdom. You look at, uh, there was a great picture, I don't know whether you saw it, maybe on the news. I know it was one of the papers I saw. There was a um, chap who was on safari somewhere. I believe it was in Kenya. um, And he managed to, he was just taking pictures of um, um, 
giraffes. It was one of the tall ones with the necks. Giraffes. And this, suddenly he realized that this one of the giraffes was a mother and she was in labor. And so they stayed there and watched and this mother gave birth. And rather undignified in a way, but this baby kind of drops because obviously giraffes are quite tall and just lands on the floor and then kind of picks itself up and falls over a few times and like Bambi trying to walk, that type of thing, you know. And gradually this, this baby starts walking and there's a whole load of snaps of this, this incredible event. But a human baby couldn't do that. A human baby's utterly helpless. God has engineered in the animal kingdom that, that you know, babies, they yes need their mothers for milk and everything else, but they have some degree where they are able to support themselves to a point. But human babies, they're utterly helpless. And God chooses to take on the form of a man. And you can imagine that the angels are going, why God, why would you do this? Why go to earth to be treated and abused and spat upon and hit and rejected by mankind? There was no secret what mankind was like. The angels would have known full well the iniquity within the heart of man. Well, this verse tells us that the angels, the principalities and the powers, those in the heavenly places, because of the existence of the church, now go, ah, so that's what it was all about. That's why he did it. And they go, wow, God, that's amazing what you've done. As they look at this thing that we take so you know, glibly in a sense, but the church that God has established. Through that, the wisdom of God is manifest to all of the heavenly beings. According to the eternal purpose. Eternal purpose. From before the foundation of the world, this was God's plan. Which he purposed in Christ Jesus. And what a precious word we have there. Our Lord. So, chapter 4 then, what should we be doing? So given all of those things, well, we should be walking worthy of our calling because of all these things. We should be so blown away with what God has done that we should walk worthy of the calling wherein we are called. We should walk as one body together. We should be growing together. We should be putting off the old man, rejecting those things. Putting away lying, wrath, wrath, theft, corrupt communication. Bitterness, anger, clamour, evil speaking, malice. Those should all be put away. We should be edifying each other by our gifts that God has given us and our words. We should be forgiving, forbearing, we should be long-suffering. And we should be speaking the truth in love. So often people speak the truth, but sometimes they don't always do it in love. Just picking up in chapter 4, verse 11. He gave some... To be apostles, this is speaking of this church, has been now been revealed. Some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, some pastors and teachers. For the perfecting of the saints. Those gifts have been given for the perfecting of the saints. For the work of the ministry. For the edifying of the body. Again, kind of, we have eddy currents that kind of whip round and so on. That's how we're to do, kind of whip each other up into this kind of attitude of love and concern and care for each other. Edifying the body of Christ till we all come to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God unto a perfect man, unto the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. You know, you see sometimes these kind of games you have on TV. And, you know, you don't, the team doesn't win until the last member of that team is across the line. Well, sometimes Christians seem to be as if it's like, if they cross the line, they're okay. But, you know, we should look at the church in the kind of sense that unless we're all across the line, 
Because that's how the body is. We're one body. We should work together. You know, if we see somebody that's struggling, we should help them. We should encourage them. We should pray for them. Again, until we all come to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God, unto a perfect man, to the very last man, to everyone, unto the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, that we henceforth be no more children tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine. You know, we really should get doctrine nailed down. We should know what we believe and why we believe it. By the slight of men, the cunning craftiness whereby, whereby they lay in wait to deceive. But speaking the truth in love may grow up into him in all things, which is the head, even Christ. So chapter 5 then, it's the why we should be doing it. So we've seen what we should be doing. So why we should be doing it? Well, because our inheritance is at stake. Not our salvation. We looked at this last time though. That our inheritance is, we, we stand to lose some of the things that we've worked for if we do not willingly from the heart serve God. We're told to lay up our treasure in heaven. And yet John tells us that we could lose those things that we've worked for. Paul was fearful that after preaching to others, he could lose everything he's worked for. We saw last time in Corinthians how there's going to be that day, the day of the Lord, the day of Christ, to be correct, because the day of the Lord refers to the time of tribulation and so on. But the day of Christ is that day when we will go and stand before the being of sea. And we were rewarded. So our inheritance is at stake. That's why we should be living this kind of life in service to God and each other. We should also be living this way because of the fear of the Lord and also because the wrath of God is coming. Because time is running out. We should be redeeming the time is what we're told in the text. And also, and arguably most importantly, because you and I have been given the privilege of being part of the bride of Christ. Paul says in Ephesians 5.32, This is a great mystery, but I speak concerning Christ and the church. Great mystery. Something that was once hidden is now revealed. And Paul is now unpacking this. It's interesting because just at the time we think we know what Paul is saying here, he kind of throws us a curve in a sense. He reverses the parallelism. He turns it around and focuses on the church using marriage as a model to communicate his highest and most intimate truths to us here. Now, we see an absolutely amazing model presented. Because back in Matthew 22 verse 2, it says, The kingdom of heaven... It's like unto a certain king which made a marriage for his son. Well, God is the father. He is, if you like, the certain king. And Jesus is the heavenly bridegroom. And the church is his bride. And we see this wonderful model that we can see in the way that a Jewish wedding is conducted. And of course, we've got to understand that Jesus, according to the flesh, was Jewish. So it really should come as no surprise. The first part of a Jewish wedding ceremony is what's known as Kiddushan. It's the Jewish word for, for marriage, and it means sanctification. 1 Thessalonians 4.3 speaks of God's will for us being sanctification. And interestingly, it tags on to that, that we should abstain from fornication. It's kind of talking about God's will, but then it says that we should abstain from fornication. Well, when you understand that in the context of marriage, God's will is that we become the bride of Christ then that kind of makes sense. We shouldn't be indulging in fornication, obviously in a physical sense, but also spiritually with the things of this world. Well, we have the ketubah, or the betrothal. It's very similar to our engagements that we have in our culture, but far more serious. It's a marriage contract between the groom and his bride. In the contract, the groom undertakes 
to give all that he has in order to provide for every need of his bride. Not only while he's alive, but also in the event of his death. Now that's, these quotes, by the way, were taken from a Jewish website about marriage. But how well does that fit in regard to what our groom has done for us to provide for our every need, not only while he was alive, but in the event of his death? To mark the contract, the groom and the bride drink from a cup of wine. How interesting. Because Matthew 26, we read, But I say unto you, I will not drink henceforth of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. There was a lot more going on in that Last Supper than the disciples probably understood at the time. But then there's an interval between the ketubah, which you just looked at, this kind of engagement, as it were, and the hoopah, the wedding ceremony proper. And it's customary for the shatan, the groom, and Kayla, the bride, to remain apart for the time leading up to the wedding day. During this time, the groom typically will return to his father's house to prepare a room for his bride. What is it that we're told? In John 14, in my father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself, that where I am, there you may be also. So we then get this interval. During the interval, we get this cleansing of the bride, as it were. Meanwhile, the bride will go to the mikvah, that's the ritual bath, to cleanse herself spiritually and enter marriage in a state of complete purity. I've inserted this bit, without spot or blemish. One part of the ritual includes removing all man-made things, such as jewellery, nail polish, etc., and then be fully immersed in water. She's supervised and assisted during the ritual to ensure that it's done correctly. Who is it that assists us in that process? It's the Holy Spirit, of course. We're told Ephesians 5, Husbands, love your wives, even as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for it, that he might sanctify and cleanse it with the washing of water by the word, that he might present it to himself, a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should be holy and without blemish. This interval that we are in now, we're in that mikvah, we're in this ritual bath, being cleansed, being got ready for our heavenly bridegroom. We're told in Ephesians 5 verse 31, For this cause shall a man leave his father and mother and shall be joined unto his wife, and they too shall be one flesh. And then again, Paul says, as we looked a moment ago, this is a great mystery, but I speak concerning Christ and the church. The Holy Spirit in this interim is our helper, the one that supervises this cleansing process. We're told in John 14, 17, He shall be with you and in you. And then we get to the wedding day. At the appointed time, the groom will return with a shout and with a blast of a ram's horn, trumpet effectively, to claim his bride and to take her back to his father's house, to the place that he's prepared for her. Well, again, isn't that exactly what we're told in Scripture? For the Lord himself shall descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel and with the trump of God and the dead in Christ shall rise first. Then we which are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so shall we ever be with the Lord. Well then back at the father's house we get to the proper marriage supper. The seven day feast for the Jews. After the ceremony the supper begins and it lasts typically for seven days. This wedding blessing, the Shiva Brasho is pronounced then. Now again, they have the seven-day feast. Seemingly in Scripture, there will be a period of seven years 
Well, we'll be celebrating and enjoying this wedding supper. And then at the end of that seven years, and you can read this in Revelation chapter 19, a wedding blessing is pronounced by the guests. That's incredible. You see how this wedding that we have historically for the Jews is mapped out here by the things that we find in Scripture between Christ and his bride. So we're told in Ephesians 5.33, Nevertheless, let every one of you in particular so love his wife, even as himself and the wife, see that she reverence her husband. So this is a, a command for us. You know, there's only two rules, one for each year, one for the husband, one for the wife. For the wife, it's let your husband be in charge. And for the husband, love your wife supremely. One commentator said that husbands should enter into your wife's world and die there. Because that's exactly what Christ did. You know, and there's no wife that had any trouble submitting to a husband who loved her as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her. You know, the question is why do we struggle when it's really so simple? So finally, chapter 6. And this is a real finally. This isn't a Paul's finally. Paul's finally come halfway through. This is finally. Chapter 6, how are we to do it? So we've given all the information now, why we're to do it and everything else, but this is how we're to do it. It's by being strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. It's by putting on the armour of God and praying always. Now we need to understand that we are presently engaged in warfare. And the question we need to ask of ourselves, not just today, this morning, but every day, are we equipped and prepared? Interestingly, Daniel chapter 10 is a very good study when you're looking at the whole area of spiritual warfare for maybe some other time. So we read in Ephesians 6.10, Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. See, we've already learned, we've gone through Galatians, we've seen that we have nothing we can bring. The only way we can live the life that God calls us to live in a way that is pleasing to him is to be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. But this is interesting, these words that we have here. The strong... It's a command. In the Greek, it's referred to as an imperative mood. It's a command. But it's also the present tense. It's really be, be continually strong. And again, according to the Greek, and I don't read Greek, but I can read those that do read Greek, and they say that it's passive voice. It says, you receive the action. We have the responsibility here to do this. The power of his might. Again, kretai is the, the Greek word. It's a power that overcomes resistance. It's the power that we find is the same reference as used in Christ's miracles. And then finally, it's the power of his might. Again, the word um, of God's inherent strength. And just think of that for a moment. How much strength does God have? Well, that's the strength that he says we can draw on so that we can be strong in him and in the power of his might. And this is how we live the life that he's called us to live. And we're to put on the whole armour of God. That you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. And there are many. The whole armour is told us. The form of Greek again apparently is the imperative. It's put on indicates that believers are responsible for this as well. So we have to do things. There is things implied that we are responsible for in our Christian walk. Everything's there. Everything's available. But we have to avail ourselves of these things. We're to be completely armed before the battle begins. You know, sometimes Christians get into a bit of a difficult situation and it's then they start trying to put on the armour. 
You know, you just think of that from a, a, a worldly perspective. Any soldier that was to go into battle, you know, you know, wearing, you know, shorts and a t-shirt and all his kit on his shoulder and a backpack and then you get in the middle of the battle and then start putting, you just wouldn't, you wouldn't see that, would you? It doesn't make sense. But why as Christians do we do it? You know, we'll get up, we'll be rushing a little bit, haven't got time to read my Bible this morning, haven't got time to read to pray this morning, off we go to work, suddenly we're in problems. Why, God, why? <laughs> well, you know, we've got to understand that we have a responsibility. And God has given us everything we need. We're told again, we wrestle not against flesh and blood. We should remember that because so often we think it is flesh and blood that are causing us the problems. No, there's powers behind those things. But against the principalities and powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness, in high places. And then we're given this list of armour. The belt of truth, the breastplate of righteousness, the preparation of the gospel of peace, the shield of faith, the helmet of salvation, the sword of the spirit. And then of course we get to the heavy artillery, which is praying continually. See Paul's detailed description of the armour may stem from being chained to a Roman soldier while in prison. But actually, the Holy Spirit is very consistent in his use of idioms here. And these same ideas actually are drawn from the Old Testament. Again, that praying always, with all prayer and supplication in the Spirit, watching thereunto with all perseverance and supplication for all saints. You know, we're to pray for each other in this. It's not spiritual warfare. So often we tend to think of it as an individual thing or maybe a church thing. But actually, we should be praying for each other in the battles that each other will be facing. Again, this should be habitual. It should be public and private. Deliberate and spontaneous. Supplication and intercession is required. Confession and humiliation. And praise and thanksgiving. We're told that no man that wars entangles himself with the affairs of this life. This is Paul speaking to Timothy. That he may please him who has chosen him to be a soldier. We shouldn't get mixed up, mixed up with the things of this world. And then finally, the last verse of Ephesians chapter 6, verse 24, just says, Grace be with all them that love our Lord Jesus Christ in sincerity. Amen. Grace concludes the letter just as it has started it. Paul had warned the Ephesian elders that false teachers would come and rise up within the flock. And their doctrinal diligence was commended in Christ's letter to the Ephesians that we find in Revelation chapter 2. But unfortunately, some believers did lose their fervency and their love for Christ. What a shame. Given all of that, given where we came from, where we are now, and given what we're told to do and how we're told to do it, that anybody could lose that kind of fervency. Let's bow our hearts. Father, we just thank you for your word. We thank you for these challenges that you placed before us this morning. Father, we thank you so much that you have paid it all. You have done everything. And Jesus, we want to live our lives in a way that is pleasing to you. We recognize that the best of our works are just filthy rags. We thank you, Lord, that you have fulfilled the law, becoming a curse for us, Lord. As your word tells us, blessed, uh, sorry, cursed is he that hangs on a tree. And Jesus, you took that curse upon yourself for us. And so we thank you that now all we have to do is receive by faith. But Lord, we do recognize that there is also an onus upon us to avail ourselves of these incredible blessings that you've placed before us, even this armour that you've provided that we are to put on. Lord, help us to do this, that we can live that life you call us to in a way that is honouring and glorifying to you. Father, impress these things upon our hearts, we pray, in the days and weeks ahead, that we would indeed grow in the knowledge and grace of our Lord and Saviour Jesus. For it is in his name we ask. Amen.